1: Welcome to part two of this week's Fantastic World, brought to you by the new book Hanna Barbera The Recorded History, now available for pre order from your favorite bookseller. Let's rejoin our guest, writer producer Tom Ruger, who talks about Scooby Doo as well as Steven Spielberg and this following story about Huckleberry Hound and the great Howard Morris.
0: Oh, about that time, right before then, Barbera sold this big package of really long. TV movies for syndication. Yeah. And they were all two hour blocks. Yeah. And they were monstrously long. I mean, I remember uh, one that went on the air was Yogi Bear and the Magical Flight
1: of the Spruce Goose. Yeah. That's an odd premise. Yeah. <laughs> I
0: saw it, the premiere uh, the night before Thanksgiving and they ran it all Thanksgiving uh, weekend. And it felt like it was 17 hours. It was two hours, but,
1: you know, every commercial break, you're thinking, well, this can't go on. But but it did. There were ten of those. They were called the Hanna Barbera Superstars series. So
0: Luton and I did the good. Uh, it was originally called the Good, the Bad, and the Huckleberry. That's one but, of the best ones. And in fact, and they changed it to the Good, the Bad, and Huckleberry Hound. I don't know why. And Luton and I had just seen uh, Nicholas Nickleby the play yes which was a two-night event like you'd go for three hours one night and the next night it'd be another three or four hours it was just like and it was on pbs they spread it out over days but it was a really long theater experience and on the second night they gave you a recap of what had happened the first night Mm -hmm. and it was really cleverly done where uh, different characters were just take the narration over when their scene was coming. So we've been an homage to that in the middle of the Good and the Bad and the Huckleberry. uh,
1: (laughs) Who would have thought?
0: We did a recap in the middle of this TV movie, everything that had been happening. And that's my favorite part of that. That and a memory that I want to share with you from the recording session. Uh, Howie Morris is in there doing the voice of Dinky Dalton. Mm -hmm. And Dinky's the biggest of the Daltons, but he has a little, tiny Howie Morris voice. So Joe Barbera has come to us. And by the way, Joe Barbera, while we were writing it, every few weeks, Joe Barbera would call us in and review what he thinks the good and the bad of Huckleberry needed to be. Mm -hmm. And it included, which we put in, some scene where a bus goes by with kids in it and saying, look at the bears! look at the Packers, look at the (laughs) bears!" And and you'll go, jeez, boo-boo-boo, I can't stand this. So... Luther and I were looking at each other and said, this is out west. Why is there a bus uh, of school children going by? But anyway, he would give us very detailed notes on some things that he wanted in there. And we would try to accommodate him. And it was fine. But one thing he wanted, he, Dinky Dalton, he said, when Dinky Dalton laughs, Joe Barbera said, he has to laugh like this. <laughs> That's how Dinky Dalton needs to laugh. And we said, great. Done. So we're at the recording session, and Harry Morris is in there doing Dinky Dalton, and he laughs any way he He (laughs) wants. We didn't interrupt the recording because we realized it needs setup. We need to tell him at the end that Joe Barbera wants this laugh, and then he'll do it. So we go to the end of the recording for pickups, and Howie's there, and we say, Howie, um, Joe Barbera wants Dinky Dalton's laugh to be a very specific thing and we'll say it to you and he said i like my laugh i like the laugh i gave you oh we like it too it's great it's a great laugh but just so we have it joe wanted to get one of these <laughs> and he fought us. he did not want to do it now we didn't know at that time that howie morris and joe Rivera had a Falling
1: out years before this. Yeah, yeah, about the Alice in Wonderland record album. Can you tell me about that just yeah. briefly or if well, you don't mind? It came from Mark Evanier, actually, because the story was told so many times and some people, they imagined they were in the room or in the hallway when that happened. But actually, it was just the two of them. The Alice in Wonderland special was 66 and he was the White Rabbit. Charles Shows was producing the HBR records at a rapid pace, and wow. that particular album had a higher budget and more voice actors than the other albums did. And my guess is that Joe Barbera assured him he would play the White Rabbit on the album, but for some reason, scheduling-wise or whatever, those things were done you know, right through real yeah, quick, right, and probably the three-hour limit on the studio and sure. all that. So, you got to be there that day. That's yes, the day we're that's doing That's the here. day, and so that's what happened. And so when he found out later, he said a colorful phrase. Uh, he suggested that Joe Barbera do something rather colorful, and then he didn't work there because, like Mister Peeble's voice changed, to Don Messick. Oh, Don Messick wow. did his voice on the album too. Several years went by, and then suddenly he was hired again, and he didn't know why. And it was like, oh, I'm back working on stuff. And he approached Joe Barbera and said, what happened? He said, I told you to do this um, manually to you. And he said, I guess I did. There was something like that. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and You don't hear an awful lot about long-term scornful grudges. It was like, we got to get work done. We want good people. Okay, come back. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, that's right. So we finally convinced him to do the laugh, but he's pissed off, right? So he goes, ha, 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 ha. That's it, Howie, great. Yeah, yeah. The session's over and he's barging out. And I said, Howie, can you wait a second, what? Because I wanted to tell him the story, that he was an impactful part of my life. I worked with him on 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo by this point. Yeah, he was so, one I mean, of the I, funny
1: ghosts. Yeah. yeah,
0: we were kind of pals, but he was in a missed mood right now. But I said, Howie, I've been meaning to tell you this story. In 1954, my parents are sitting, watching your show of shows. And they're doing This Is Your Life sketch.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And Sid is being pulled out of the audience against his will and being brought up on stage, This Is Your Life. And they bring out Sid's uncle. Uncle Uncle Goopy. Uncle Goopy. And that's you, Howie. Well, I know yeah, And (laughs) you hug and kiss it and he hugs and kiss you and for the rest of the episode they can't keep the two of you apart you're just constantly like you <laughs> try to hug and kiss each other <laughs> and so my parents are at home watching this thing and they are laughing so hard that my mother falls out of her chair she's <laughs> laughing and her water breaks and i am born two hours later wow incredible so, so i want to just Thank you that you had impact
1: Induced. On, uh,
0: my birth, on my birth. And he says, that's a very nice story. But I still say my last better than Joe Barbaris.
1: <laughs> that's so a I'm great the, story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my good, You know, listeners, if you have never seen that this is your life uh, sketch, and probably many of you have with Uncle Goopy, if you're feeling down... It's almost impossible. I watch it over and over again, cannot stop laughing. It is truly a piece of pure comedy gold. But I will warn that perhaps someone with a heart condition or ladies who are expecting, it's almost like Space Mountain, (laughs) proceed with caution because it's so incredibly funny.
0: Yeah, put your seatbelt
1: on. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. I I love that story.
0: (laughs) Howie, what a character.
1: Yeah, Mark and he were very, very close. And he was a wonderful friend, but he could be very moody. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But a brilliant, uh, just a, one of the, one of the, br- and a great television director and movie director. Yes, yes, Probably never got, I mean, he got some recognition,
0: but not enough. That's right. He really was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, uh, he was. Just mention Mitch Schauer again, uncanny uh, artist. First of all, he can look at you once and do a caricature of you that's like spot on. It's like, how do you do that? He also could do it without ever lifting his pen. In other words, the line would just be uh, connected. And, and I don't know how he did wow. it. Wow!
1: Imagine what he would do on an a sketch.
0: <laughs> Those are so limiting.
1: <laughs> that was um, amazing.
0: Yeah. And also, I want to mention another writer who did work on the Scooby episodes that I did. Uh, Like he did Pound Puppies, Yogi's Treasure Hunt, Scooby Mysteries, South Pole Vault, I remember, was the title of one of his. This is a fellow named George Atkins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are people in my life that I find to be among the funniest. Paul Ruggs, one of the funniest. Uh, Oh, yeah. Jerry, Jerry Stoner. But in their company, I would put George Atkins because he could come in and he's in there to pitch stories or to go over script or something. And, I mean, it could be literally some story, you know, that happened between his car in the parking lot and walking into my office. The story didn't have to be really about anything. Mm-hmm. But him describing things was just hilarious. He's just a hilarious person, George Atkins. So he wrote some scoobies, but it turns out he wrote every episode of fractured fairy tales he did isn't that wild george atkins wrote every episode and when you think about the credits for any j word production of all the things that deserved to have decent credits where you could see who wrote what and what Mm. they were terrible you could barely even see the names going by because they'd be on like a trolley going past camera or they'd be popping with light bulbs going off or something George Atkins, he got hired to do the Fractured Fairy Tales, and he did. His thinking is pure Fractured Fairy Tales. It's just odd, strange, off the wall.
1: Same thing on the Ward shows with the composers. You didn't really know who composed what? Dennis Farnan or Frank Comstock?
0: And the voice actors aren't really... I mean, I guess they do mention some voice actors, like Edward Everett Horton. But Mm -hmm. anyway, working with Joe and Bill, absolutely... Bill Hanna, when I got the first gig to produce Putnam Scooby-Doo, I really wanted that first one to be great. So this was in 1987, 88. Yeah, 88. I said, I went to Bill Hanna. I said, wait, you direct, and he did. He did? Bill Hanna took the storyboard and the script and the soundtrack, the the dialogue track, up to his loft office at Hanna-Barbera, which was like a little one-square glassed-in room on top of the building that's where he would go to be like left alone mm-hmm. and he spent a week up there with a metronome going
1: K-k-k-k. he was i mean you witnessed it he was a genius at timing he was a musician and so he did the sheets mm-hmm. for the entire
0: putnam scooby-doo pilot episode bicycle built for i said can we give you credit he said now no. you know ray patterson those guys deserve all the credit, you know, don't give me credit. But he directed that
1: one. Wow. See that? that, There are figureheads or people who used to be hands-on and stopped, but with both Bill and Joe, they just kept working, and they did have involvement in the shows. Their fingerprints are on them.
0: So Bill's doing that, and it's got all the sort of Texas Avery-type wild takes that showed had those. So he told Barbera about it, so, you know, a week later, after... Bill's done, Joe said, well, I know you're just now getting these shows underway, so you, you haven't got the footage back. But when you get the footage back, keep in mind, Texas wild takes, visually spectacular. But keep in mind, Tex always accompanied those wild takes with excellent wild sound effects. Right. And quite honestly, I had not
1: even thought about that at that point. And he's right. It needed that extra push. You know the music too. Scott Bradley's music, especially in the Tom and Jerry's, but also in the Tex Avery's, he did the opposite of what Carl Stalling did because the music created the impact in the Warner cartoons. He yes. would stop the music and do a big build-up to the sound effect. Ah,
0: see, now I have to rewatch all the Tex Avery cartoons. Oh, and they're so well,
1: they're so rewatchable. Yeah. So are the Pup Names. Those are fun, fun shows, and what they were starting to do in a way. Was what Hanna Barbera was doing in prime time at one era. A lot of different ages were starting to watch. I knew people who stopped watching Saturday Morning, but they tuned in for these, and I think the network put them on later for that reason.
0: Uh, well, I watch every day. BTV uh, tune in with <laughs> Tune and Bill. Yeah, I you know DVR and I DVR the Saturday schedule. And you think about it, Greg. In our lifetime. You know, I think back when I was a kid, I would watch all these different syndicated packages. Back then, everything was in black and white. They were showing pre-48 stuff on, you know, local Channel 5 with a host. And then they would show the post-48 stuff on the Bugs Bunny show. But never until I think now have so many great classic cartoons been available to
1: watch on TV almost in one place on t v It's really just... I am really enjoying, first of all, I could watch the Warners and the MGMs over and over again, but the Lance stuff that they're starting to show now, they didn't run as often. And so I saw Space Mouse the other day, and it is what it is, you know, but it's still, I always wanted to see Space Mouse, and it's on there.
0: Exactly, and there are Columbia cartoons on there that I've never, ever seen. And the Woody Woodpeckers, occasionally they'll be a fun
1: one. Bill and and Tooney are kind of like the TCM hosts now because they are giving information and stuff. And that's what you want. You want to know more. Well,
0: I I don't know if the little kids care, but I do.
1: I love it. I love it. Well, the little kids will go, blah, 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 start the cartoon. They don't go on too long. This stuff's watchable for all different ages, all different people. Absolutely. So it's great. MeTV has become... um, It just keeps getting better and better. I never watched Land of the Giants when it was on it because it was like, well, it's not lost in space and there was other stuff on and it's like... This is kind of a fun show. Wait, I'm, I'm, is I'm, Land
0: of the Giants on there? On yeah. TV? they, they have oh, a, I didn't know.
1: They're running Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost in Space, Land of the Giants, and Time Tunnel in a block on Saturday, I think Saturday oh, nights. I just saw Time Tunnel and I dvr Time Tunnel, the series, because I haven't seen that in so long and
0: I, lo- I was addicted to Time Tunnel. Oh,
1: you know, that to me is a show where the set was the star. I wanted to run oh, yeah. into that thing yeah. so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And who was the woman who was there? She was very pretty. Oh, and she beautiful. was beautiful. Like, Lee Merriweather. Oh, Lee
0: Merriweather. Was she a Miss America or something yes. like
1: that? Yes, she yeah. was. Yeah. And Whit Bissell. Whit, you can't go Whit wrong. When, I Whit was Bissell. just going to say, was Whit Bissell in that? Oh, uh, you can't go wrong when you got Whit Bissell. <laughs> That's great. I'd like to do a little transition into. Yes. You went from Hanna Barbera. Jean McCurdy was one of the... And she was at Hanna-Barbera for a while. Was that yes. part of the transition? Because I'd love to know, this is one of the things we want to learn, is how many outstanding talents and great other things, you know, feature films and stuff, came because people had earned their stripes at Hanna-Barbera. And that's what happened to you.
0: Yes. Jean Barbera... Uh, Jean Barbera. Jane Barbera was a production manager. She mm-hmm. was great, too. Jean McCurdy was in charge of the writers with Margaret Lesh. And so Jean basically made sure each show had the right writers working on it. She had been at Warner Brothers earlier and she went back in like 88, I think. And so she's at Warner Brothers when Perry Semmel and Steven Spielberg were trying to make a, a movie with like young versions of Bugs and Daffy. Mm-hmm. It didn't pan out. And so Semmel said, let's make it a TV show and... They didn't want to give Steven a full chunk of merchandising from the Looney Tunes. (laughs) They wanted to make sure that whatever this entity was, it wasn't directly Looney Tunes. Mm -hmm. They made it children of Bugs and Daffy, but aspiring tunes.
1: The trainees.
0: (laughs) Yes. So Jean McCurdy uh, is there. She's in charge of animation. And they say, okay, find a company that can make this tune show we want to make he said, well, why don't we just make it? And she said, well, you don't have a division. You don't have a studio. She said, well, we could get one together pretty quick. They said, all right, if you want to give it a shot. And so that day uh, she called me and she said, can we meet? I want to talk to you about a possible show to work on. So we met at uh, a restaurant in Burbank. Shay knew, I think. And she said, OK, we've got this show. Spielberg's involved. Do you want to be the producer of this thing? Because I had just done the Scooby show and it- It was considered pretty good of kind. But she wanted me to do this Tiny Tims thing. And I said, great, but I'm under contract at Hanna-Barbera. He said, well, see what you can do and call me tomorrow. So I went into Hanna-Barbera the next day and I went to Joe and I said, here's this opportunity and... I'd like to take it if you'd let me. And he said, said okay, I'll I'll let you do it. It sounds like a good thing for you. And I went to Bill Hanna. he said the same thing. So they let me out of my contract that day. And the next day I started at Warner's developing Tiny Team. It was sort of like the same thing as the Scooby, you know. I <laughs> I watched Scooby for a couple of days and then I became a storyteller. This is very similar. It was like the first meeting I had with Steven was basically I just told him My favorite cartoons are the Warner Brothers cartoons. I mean, I loved Hanna-Barbera when I was a kid. But the Warner Brothers cartoons, the rings come up. You see like Porky and Daffy's photo bombing behind Porky. And you just know it's going to be something funny and wild. And and the music's going to be great. You're just going to be irreverent and sassy. and, And Spielberg looks at me and says, yes, that's exactly. Those are my favorite cartoons too. Let's make those. And I said, that's what we should do. And so we had a very nice opening volley. Uh, The next meeting, I was telling him that they all live in Acme Acres, and ideas that I developed, uh, they go to Acme University, and I had the names for some of the characters. So it just went beautifully. So I stayed at Warner Brothers for a dozen years working on shows like that.
1: And Animaniacs and Piggy and the Brain, and and all of those shows within those shows, too, because that was... Well, yeah.
0: Stephen, he
1: didn't know any of us. He didn't know Gene, he didn't know me. I
0: remember we got an episode, we would board it in LA, we would write it, record it, board it, lay it out. We had entire crews on each cartoon, we were really spending a fortune and uh, a lot of effort. And then we would ship stuff overseas to get the final animation done and the paint done. And it would go to uh, maybe TMS, Tokyo Movie Shinsuke in Japan, or uh, Cuckoo's Nest, James Wong in Taiwan, Taipei, and a couple other places. One of the first episodes we got back, I think it was called uh, Viewer Request Day, or it was just... Anyway, the line quality was thick. Mm-hmm. Stephen wanted pencil-thin line quality, like feature film line, really thin line. Right. But Taipei had done big, chunky lines. It was animated well, but it did have these chunky lines. And he wrote me back, he said, this is unforgivable. He went to pull his name off the show. If this is the quality of shows you're making... Uh, I don't want anything to do with it. I mean, basically, he was freaking out, and he was ready to quit. And this was exactly the problem that people warned me (laughs) would happen. And basically, if this were allowed to stand, he would quit. I'd be out of a job. It would be a mess. Mm -hmm. So literally within 24 hours, I'm on a plane to Taipei (laughs) to uh, explain to them how important it is that the line quality be fixed. And they, of course, fixed it. So Stephen, with Tiny Tunes, he was really kind of scared that we were going to besmirch his name, his reputation. And so he tended to uh, worry. Remember, we were having a big rap party on the lot. And it was like maybe a month before we were going on the air. It was sort of a pep rally.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was going to be fun. And Stephen, instead, he was just embarking on Hook, so he was worried about Hook, too. Mm-hmm. But he came over to me and he walked around with me for like 10 minutes just ripping into me not me but there was a show called the acme bowl he said now tom i don't know what you're thinking the line quality is so bad and there are no shadows and anything i mean how can you do this and i was like well okay we'll fix it we'll fix it so anyway by the time we go on the air Mm -hmm. steven's freaking out again because the pilot (laughs) the pilot wasn't ready Like a week before we went on the air with the pilot, we didn't have like maybe half the footage. Wow. Oh, wow. It was unbelievable. So that was being done in Taipei. And so they pulled everybody on staff off all the other shows to make this thing come together. And we went on the air and Variety called it an evergreen, beautiful, wonderful. The ratings were great for the first month and they continued great and suddenly we are like golden with Stephen. he loves us and it won a bunch of emmys so after a couple of years he's thrilled and that's when he came to me and he said okay what do you want to do next and that's where i got the chance to make animaniacs because that was the great freedom project where we were free i was free we were free to do cartoons that we wanted to make
1: they didn't have to be related to bugs bunny we really ran with it there were so many memorable characters and then the little mini musicals and and bumby the dear little deer oh bumby (laughs) the dearest deer! god
0: that is so nice Uh, there was so Uh, many things you know at the same time we had uh, an enormous budget for these steven shows so he was getting the best we could possibly do under the time constraints and the money constraints. Mm-hmm. But we had the full orchestra. Yeah, we, we, we recorded the music in the same place. The Looney Tunes had been recorded. Same piano was used. Bruce Broughton was the leader. He was the head music guy of Tiny Tunes. But he brought in all sorts of really great... I mean, he brought in Debney. He brought in Richard Stone. Is it Fred Steiner? Who did the theme
1: song to Perry Mason? Fred Steiner uh, that, did that, and he also did the Bowwinkle show theme.
0: So he did uh, an episode or two. We just had really great guys, because Bruce didn't want to do every one of them, unlike Richard Stone, who <laughs> wanted to do every episode
1: of Animaniacs, and he was like the reincarnation of Carl Stalling, uh, Richard Stone was. And also what made the music funny was that the musicians were encouraged to play it funny, because we always used to say Warner Brothers' music is very sarcastic.
0: <laughs> that's a great way to look at it yeah
1: and my favorite cue in any warner brothers cartoon i think it's claws for alarm when the mice are on each other's shoulders making the ghost go by to scare sylvester this sort of uh-huh. meow, 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 meow. i just it's like uncle <laughs> it's really funny because it's such a spot on making fun of scary music yeah. while it's scary yes. you oh know? that's a good point it is making fun of it yeah, yeah. so that's what these shows did and my gosh, they're just, they are, they're truly evergreen. And I know so many people who love these shows. Well, for us uh, and for me, right place, right
0: time. When I went to college, I remember one of my senior thesis presentations was to a room filled with professors and students. And I was talking about, I was talking about animation. I was using Warner Brothers as my subject. And I was showing cartoons, segments that, would be a close-up on Wally Coyote with his the eyeballs, with the red cracks in his eyeballs, mm-hmm. and as he falls away from camera. And said, "This is the kind of cartoon I want to be able to make someday. I pray because you're dealing with beautiful, funny emotions visually, uh, tragically, <laughs> and it's really for an artist to be able to have these tools to tell a story is is a gift. And I honestly, I, I was talking out of my hat i i wanted it but i didn't anticipate it happening and i i feel so fortunate that i did have these opportunities and i gotta thank bill Hanna for picking up the
1: phone that day uh really uh, changed my life isn't that something i mean it really is a miraculous thing can we talk about subsequent stuff i mean i know you did the 7d for disney and you had your yes. own company and maybe what you're doing now
0: well right now i just finished a documentary on my uh father-in-law who his name is Bill Malley and he was the art director of the original Exorcist Uh, and he's 93 now. It's a documentary of him talking about the art direction of the Exorcist and how that came about and some of the stories are absolutely hilarious. So that's what I've been doing uh, mostly this year. It's taken up a lot of time but I've been doing a lot of drawing lately and hope to pitch some shows at some point. Paul Dini and I did a pilot for something. We're still Hopeful on that. Anyway, I
1: do have a bunch of little cartoons in the works. Wow. Oh, you know, you gave us such a plethora, I guess would be the word, um, (laughs) of stories. Stories I didn't know. Stories that if everybody listening, their cup runneth over the way mine does. I mean, I've always loved the stuff you've done, but it's such a pleasure to have been able to talk about this stuff. And the stories are as funny as the cartoons.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks, Greg. And at some point, we'll get back together and I'll
1: share some of the other ones, okay? Okay. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, let's do that. We can dive deeper into some of them, and that would be great, great. too. I hope everybody enjoyed it. I can't imagine that you didn't. If you have any uh, comments, you can put it on our Facebook page. We have a fantastic World of Hannah and Barbara podcast page. And also, you can like and subscribe. I thank you again, Tom Ruger, for joining us. I thank everyone for listening, and tune in next time for the next episode of yeah, yeah, our show. Yeah, yeah. We hope you enjoyed the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera
0: with Greg Airbar. Please join us again and many thanks for listening.